You're listening to Fueled, a Finstamaker podcast, and I'm your host, Catherine Finstamaker. Before we start, I want to give everybody an idea of who you are and your role here, so I'm going to read your quick bio. Jean Arsenault Hornsby is a professional engineer and director at Finstamaker with 15 years of numerical modeling, water resource engineering, planning, and project management experience. Mrs. Hornsby earned her master's of science degree in hydraulic and environmental engineering from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette under the direction of Dr. Ehab Maselli and Dr. Imad Habib. Currently, Mrs. Hornsby leads Fenstemaker's water resources team throughout the company's offices in Lafayette, Baton Rouge, Lake Charles, and New Orleans, Louisiana. Her main responsibilities include leading multi-million dollar projects that range from coastal and watershed modeling and management to roadway design and construction for both the public and private sectors. She has obtained her experience and expertise by working on projects in Louisiana, Texas, and Florida, with the majority of her hydrologic and hydraulic modeling experience focused on southwest Louisiana, specifically the Vermilion, Tesh, Mermintal, and Calcasieu watersheds. As a certified floodplain manager, Jean assists many area communities in flood mitigation project funding through the use of available grant programs. She also assists communities in drafting flood protection and drainage ordinances, as well as leading participation and renewal activities in the FEMA community rating system. Jean was raised and currently resides with her family in Lafayette Parish. Jean, you have such a vast range of competencies uh, for this podcast season on infrastructure, if you don't mind. I'd like to focus in on your dealings with and knowledge of drainage infrastructure components and its correlation to hydrologic modeling, if that's okay. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so just launching into it, and I'll say that I want to give a shout out to your team who also submitted (laughs) questions for this podcast episode. I usually have a couple of things (laughs) that I'm curious about and then reach out to your team. So they submitted questions as well. So I'm grateful for their input there. I'm uh, personally intrigued by what all might be encompassed when making reference to hydraulic engineering. So it's my understanding that this is sort of a niche application of civil engineering. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So hydraulic engineering basically covers the flow of water, whether it's through a channel or a piped system. So we often study hydraulics through the use of hydraulic modeling in which we replicate the system and can run various scenarios. It is a niche, but one of the things I've always been fascinated with the hydraulic side of things was that pretty much no matter which civil project you look at, whether it's a bridge or a roadway or even site civil, there's always an element of hydraulics in there. And I like that because I always get to participate and be a part of bigger projects and I'm a piece of it. So that, that's one of the things that I've liked in about hydraulic engineering. So it's kind of like the underpinning to any like structural decision. It's Yes. So there's always, you know, you're building a building. How high does it need to be so it doesn't flood? Roadway, you know, we, we designed the bridges that cross channels, we, the culverts, all of those different elements are, are part of it. And so as a hydraulic engineer, I get to participate in those different pieces. 
So most people, whenever they think of infrastructure, and I can speak to my own knowledge of it, probably immediately think of roads and bridges. And so while roads and bridges are significant for transportation, there are other critical components of infrastructure that you work with. So firstly, can you tell us about the importance of drainage infrastructure and how that supports the health of transport systems? Sure. Um, so, you know, drainage right now is definitely the hot topic. Everybody's yes. talking about it these days and, and has a focus on it. I always relate drainage to, to almost a quality of life. You know, people on their day-to-day activities, you know, if a road floods, we can't get to work or you can't get to your kids at school, your home. You know, often I hear when people's houses are flooded, they thunder, freaks them out, and they get a lot of anxiety. So it, it's interesting because I feel drainage is is part of our infrastructure, but it, it's one of the big ones that impacts our, our true quality of life for people. So I, I think it's important um, when we think drainage that we, we look at that as a definitely one of the perspectives. So Yeah, and mentioning that personal aspect of it too, that infrastructure is not yeah. just the structure, it's how it impacts the community as well. Yep. So what types of funding sources are used for drainage infrastructure projects? So generally drainage projects are usually funded through uh, your municipality or your government agencies and that's usually around here a tax base. The other large funding component sadly is usually natural disaster driven. We usually don't see a lot of funding going towards drainage projects before, in preparation, we see it after the fact. Um, 2016 storms were a, a big event, and a lot of money is coming to the state from the federal level. So we go through a lot of grant applications. We have to go through many steps to get money, which is a lengthy process. And so th- that is a hurdle when it comes to drainage funding. Um, but some of the other infrastructure, a lot of it is, is paid for through your tax base. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of sad that the funding is more reactionary. Yeah, we're not proactive enough. It's, it's more reactive. There are some funding mechanisms in the federal government for proactive base. And um, I'm looking at, you know, a, I'm seeing more states going to being more proactive. Mm-hmm. But we are in response to an event that happened. Right. So, it, you know, it, it's an interesting take. But we are dependent on uh, those federal grants to, to fund a lot of our bigger projects. Yeah, that makes sense. What are the most challenging issues associated with drainage improvement projects? That sounds like a loaded question. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, so some of our challenges when we approach a drainage project, similar to, to a lot of other infrastructure, right-of-way is definitely a big issue. Um, you know, everybody's like, clean my channel behind my house. Well, a lot of our ro- regulations from zoning and policy mm-hmm. have allowed people to literally build their homes and their fences on the edge of a channel or a, a lateral. And so it makes everything from widening that channel to maintaining it quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, funding, you know, having the money available to do the projects that we need is definitely a, a struggle and a challenge that we face. And again, going back to the, the being proactive or reactive, a lot of times we're the after afterthought, you know. Yeah. It's like after the storm, let's do a drainage project. So I, I think that is one of our, our bigger challenges that we, we see 
in, in the drainage side of things. Okay. Can you tell us how you communicate with other types of engineers or what you wish other disciplines knew about yours, be they structural, transportation, geotechnical, or whatever their area may be? It's my understanding that infrastructure projects should be designed as a system, but they can unfortunately become isolated design sometimes. So what do you wish that they knew What do you wish that they would consider in their design? Yeah, like you mentioned, pretty much all projects, you know, have multiple elements. Um, One of the things is we're often, as the hydraulic side, pulled in last into those projects. You know, under a contract, they're asking you to build a road or build me a building or, you know, one of these different elements, change out that bridge. That's what the contract says. But we're often the afterthought, you know, if we involved as early as possible, we can work so that when we lay out a a roadway alignment, let's place it on a ridge. Let's place it where it has the least amount of impact to the natural flow of water. You know, getting us involved, we can answer that. Even, you know, oil and gas, a well site, we can move a well pad over 20 or 50 feet and no longer have to go through the floodplain permitting process or have an impact to the natural system. So having an early involvement in a project, I think is key. I'm a big proponent of early planning, you know, getting in from the beginning and and sitting there and looking at all the components. But so many times I'm called in after the fact and saying, oh, hey, I need to do a no rise. Well, they've already bought the piece of property. They've already laid out everything. And when I say you need a bigger pond, you know, I I throw a wrench in things. So So early early involvement. Break, what is a no rise? So uh, a no rise certificate is in the FEMA world. Um, We have, we we don't want to impact our floodplain. So today, if the, for a certain storm event, such as the 100-year, the water surface gets up to a certain point. Well, if I go and I build in that area and Mm -hmm. I take up volume, the water is going to go up. Think of it dropping an ice cube into a glass of water. Mm -hmm. So what the no-rise does, you're basically offsetting that displacement of fill somewhere else. So typically if we fill in a location, we'll dig a pond right next to it to balance those two pieces out. And we call it a no-rise because the idea is that you should have no rise or no change in that water surface. You don't want to hurt your neighbor. You know, that's the yeah. bottom line. So so that's why we see a lot of, like, newer developments and things. They'll have this fancy kind of, like, ponds yes. on the property. That's just sort of a... Yeah. That, that it kind it's of, like a cut-fill balance. It is. It kind of uh, does two things. One is it does offset the amount of fill that they're placing. The other thing is that it holds the water back. And what Mm -hmm. they'll do is they'll put a small pipe so that it slowly discharges that water out and rather than just letting it all run off. Because before we developed, it was maybe just a grassy area and that water got to soak into the ground. Well, now we added streets, rooftops, that water wants to get out fast. So we dig a pond, allow the water to route to that pond, kind of stay there until the other, you know, the channel water surface goes down and then it can go into the channel so it just kind of holds it back i didn't realize it was controlling the flow as well yep that's really interesting it's a delay system so typical standards require you to like whatever originally was leaving that site from a flow standpoint you can't make it anymore so you have to hold it in order to to let it go out slower yep that's why they the tension yep well, so what is your role in the different phases of a project from data collection to design and construction? So 
you know, in working in hydraulics, I've done pretty much every piece, you know, from data collection, we deal with a lot of data when we do hydraulic models, from LIDAR to GIS files, things like that. And then so once we gather our data, we'll go in and we like to do what we call a gap analysis. Um, We don't like to just, you know, start something from scratch. Our government and people have paid for to start pieces. And if we can build off of it, that's great. So we gather as much data as we can. We do figure out where our gaps are. Um, We'll collect survey. We'll generate a model that replicates that natural system as best as possible. Um, And then we'll run different uh, scenarios. We like looking at probability of things. You know, what happens if I get a 100-year rainfall, but the Vermilion River is low, has a low stage? Okay. I could see the same impact if I get a 10-year rainfall, but the Vermilion River is high. So, you know, we'll take that and we'll run different scenarios. From there, I'll look at feasibility. We'll start running feasibility of projects, determining which projects have the best benefit for what we're trying to solve. Maybe I've got a cluster of homes that have flooded. So we'll look and say which projects have the most benefit. We also make sure that whatever we're doing doesn't impact somebody downstream. Uh Water moves, you know, it's not something that I can take and just make it disappear. So ensuring that whatever project we implement helps somebody downstream. I often hear, you know, oh, just change. The problem is that culvert, you know, you know, the rails came through. One of the first things in our area was the railroad. So under the railroad are a lot of smaller pipes. Well, we've built on that. Well, everybody's like, look, just change that pipe out. Just make it bigger and we wouldn't flood anymore. But that just would move the water downstream. And those people downstream of the railroad, maybe it would increase their water surface and make them flood where they don't currently. So water moves around. Um, we yeah. have to take that into account. So just kind of looking at everything as very connected. Yep. And, you know, nowadays I've, I've gone from being the modeler to now more overseeing the modelers um, on my team and, and doing project management. So that's kind of my my data collection days have progressed more to, to project management and overseeing people and projects. That must be a neat shift too, to kind of move from being so – I guess, in the weeds with it to like transitioning into more of a mentorship management perspective. Yeah, it it has. It has. Um, I have to say that like I I give, you know, complete recognition to to my mentor, Dr. Ehab Maselli. He he came in and, you know, he taught me how to model, but more he taught me to look at the bigger picture, um, determine what questions, you know, is my client asking how can the data be used? How do we relay that information to people? So that has been a, a fun transition of going from being the one, you know, running, being behind the computer, running the models, to now being in front of the client and, and trying to explain to them the results as well as like ways that they can utilize that to maybe enforce policy or in, put in projects and things like that. So. Most of your projects require significant interdepartmental communication and coordination with multiple government agencies. Um, Is that challenging? I know that's probably definitely challenging. That's not even a question. But um, can you talk about how you navigate these challenges to meet all the rules and regulations while getting the projects done in a timely manner? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. no matter what project I touch, I feel that it even ha- either has a f- component of FEMA or the core involved. Um, and majority of my clients are, are government related. So 
involving everybody can be a challenge. One of the things I like to do is at the beginning, we, we sit down at the table, you know, if I'm on a state highway, is DOTD involved? Who are the key players? Um, putting everybody, you know, on the same page. What are we doing? I think that transparency has helped. Mm-hmm. Um, also, as I've gone through my career, establishing relationships. So establishing those relationships and, and them having, you know, trusting that we're on the right path and that we're doing all the different steps. Um, you know, I like to know what steps I need to follow and we'll go through them. So I think that's important and, and has made projects successful when you have multiple agencies involved. Bottom line, I tell a lot of my clients, you know, these guys are involved. That does not mean something's going to get done quick. You know, so having that up front and understanding the steps we have to go to is is definitely an important part of making projects successful. I feel like even, you know, in my role here, a lot of my job consists of getting the right people at the table mm-hmm. together, which sounds kind of like what you're talking yeah. about. It's just like making sure that all these different agencies have a seat at the table, have a voice in the project and... But yeah. you, like, being in charge of coordinating all of that is a lot of responsibility. It is. And I've learned follow-up, 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 you know. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't blame them. You know, a lot of these government agencies, my project is not their only project, and it's yeah. not their top priority. You know, for me and for my client, that is a top priority project. So it's up to me to set up recurring, you know, whether it's a call or a meeting so that we can all – be on the same page and, and kind of hold each other accountable. Yeah. Um, I think that that's really important to to the success. Yeah, definitely. And following up. Follow up, follow up, follow up. <laughs> <laughs> you can't say it enough. You really can't. Uh, what have you found to be the most effective ways to engage and obtain meaningful input from the public and stakeholders regarding specifically um, drainage needs and improvements? Honesty. I think honesty is at at the forefront. Um, A lot of times they hear political sides of things, you know, Um, but as the engineer, I feel that if I can be honest and truthful with them, um, that goes a long way. They they then feel the trust. You know, I I mentioned trust earlier. I think honesty Mm -hmm. and trust, they, they go in hand in hand, no matter if we're talking drainage, roadway projects, anything. As an engineer, you know, being truthful, this is going to take two years. Being upfront with them, letting them know the timelines that we, we have, the obstacles that we have. I think a lot of times the frustration that I see from the public is that the lines of communication are not open. Okay. So if they know the challenges, they understand the hurdles, they're not always happy, <laughs> yeah. but, but they at least have an understanding. So the more we can inform the public, the better. Another thing is we have been hosting, um, we did one actually last week, a town hall meeting. Oh, that's and, a good idea. Yeah, and the town halls are great, and it's not for people to just come in and have a mic and, and, and talk. But what we do is we set up stations where they go around, and yes, we want to hear from them. Tell me, you know, where do you live? Do you flood? Do your streets flood? Tell me what you have. But then we also use it as an opportunity to inform them. We have set up, you know, mock science fair projects so they understand how a detention pond works. What does it mean? You know, I get the question all the time. I mean, if we, that wet pond, it already has water in it. How's that helping my neighborhood? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and letting them understand that it's the volume on top of it that counts. And, you know, the wet pond actually is an easier maintenance 
We don't have to mow three acres of property and we can also use it as an asset. So we use it at, we use the town hall as an informative process. Last, the one we just did, we did it at a school. We invited children. We had an area where they got to color, learn about the hydrologic cycle, learn about litter abatement, you know, um, these different elements. Uh, We did a, like a flashcard board where they could answer, um, you know, they had a question, they flip it. You know, one of them was like, what are the top five wettest cities in the U.S. and Lafayette's actually number five. Wow. So, you know, a lot of people that blew people away, you know, and it makes them say, oh, you know, I understand that. I know that's why we're having this, you know, when you see statistically where we're at. Um, Mm -hmm. So they really enjoy that. We also took public comment on, you know, what policies do they think would work in their city? Which programs can we implement? Where do they want to see projects? And then lastly, we went in and we informed them of what we've been doing. We yeah. showed them before and after, you know, footage of some of the channels that have been cleaned. We've showed them the plan. This is where we're going to go next. This is how much money we have in the budget. This is how much this costs. So people really were receptive to this because they said, you know, honesty. There was yeah. honesty there. We, we didn't tell them that this project was going to get done in three months when it's going to take two years. Um, they liked the fact that, they learn something. I had so many people tell me like, I left today learning something I never even knew, you know? So, um, and giving them the resources they need. A lot of times, you know, FEMA has things. There's different companies that offer flood mitigation for a personal homeowner that Mm -hmm. they can help protect themselves. Similar to putting up plywood after a hurricane, you know, before a hurricane, they can actually put barriers around their house and things like that. So, we got them informed with those types of people. So again, I go back to honesty and, and, and people want to learn. They want to understand. Yeah. So I think that's really, really an important piece. It sounds like in addition to being honest that you and your team were extremely creative in that <laughs> scenario to bring about all those different activities and things to include kids. And um, that just sounds above and beyond, but definitely at the same time, so necessary and needed. So it doesn't sound like something that I would expect from, you know, my engineering yeah. firm to come <laughs> and like put on a, a basically yeah. a show, showcase. Um, but that's really neat. Yeah. And I'm finding more ways that I can involve, uh, you know, a lot of it stems from me being a mom, but involving children because, man, they're the best sounding board. You know, kids will tell parents like, you know, don't throw that on the ground, you know, they don't want it to litter because they learned in class that when you throw it on the ground, it washes into your channel, ends up in our river. So kids are fantastic. um, And we're looking to get more involved in um, with the schools and stuff like that, for some of the other parishes that I'm working in. So I'm really excited about that. That's something that um, just really excites me. Yeah, they're our future generation, you know, they're gonna make it what it is. So let's teach them today. Yes. Oh, my gosh, I couldn't agree more. So your projects, I imagine, require you to work with extremely large amounts of data. Um, And I've heard kind of tangentially just about, you know, like our server storage space and like these terabytes that we're bringing in whenever we pull these massive data sets. But what types of data are you recording primarily? 
So primarily we look at um, water level. It's pretty much the main things. You know, we wanna see how much does an area flood today? And like I said, looking at projects, um, how do they impact that, that water level? But in today's technology, you know, we deal with large uh, LIDAR grids. We deal with really long durations of, of data. You know, we don't wanna just look at major events like the August 2016 storm. We wanna see what happens in these flash flood events. So we typically will take long durations of rainfall. Um, we'll isolate storms that, you know, we can calibrate our models on and that we can utilize for analysis. And we'll bring in radar and things like you see, you know, just radar similar to what your meteorologist shows when you watch the weather. Um, so we use all these different pieces. We like we, land use data is huge for us. Also looking at um, statistics on how high have rivers gotten. Um, other things that we're dealing with right now are our future. You know, what does the subsidence level look like today? And what do we predict it to be in 50 years? Sea level rise, you know, it, it's, we're seeing the impacts today. There, There's areas, you know, in Iberia Parish that used to never see water and it doesn't have to rain a drop. You get a wind and a high tide and there's water in areas covering streets now. So we're seeing the impacts um, mm -hmm. and that data is important. We've got lots of agencies that are collecting this data. So we take it and we try and utilize it in our models, not just to look at what's going on today in our existing conditions, but mm -hmm. we wanna ensure that the projects that we're implementing and even policies and programs can benefit us in 50 years. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, that's another piece of data that, that we utilize as well. That's even more than I had imagined. <laughs> <laughs> so that must require mastery of many different software programs for processing and analysis. What's your approach to managing and processing through such vast quantities of information? Um, again, I go probably to upfront planning, you know, when mm -hmm. we, we start a project and we've actually got some processes that we're, we're working on and have some mastered some some change as we go but um you know everything from what are you going to name a file you know we run 50 storm events um to look at you know how does a, a project impact various runs like I, I was mentioning various storms like I mentioned earlier so we'll package these up and we we try and be systematic of how we name things we make sure everybody on our team is on the same level um there's off great software now that lets you track versions of of projects and things like that. So utilizing our technology that's out there mm -hmm. as well as good organization. So um, I've got team members that are phenomenal at organizing and they, they keep us straight. So that sounds like a, a coordination <laughs> effort too. And communication <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So beyond that, how do you keep up with the ever-changing, ever-evolving technologies that are required in all of this? So that's always fun because I feel like once we've like mastered something, <laughs> the next version comes out that's, you know, makes it a little different or um so one of the things we deal with, we work at the with the core software, HECRAS. Okay. Um, it's recently in the last few years transitioned from being one D to 2D. So, yeah. you know, we've always, Finstamaker for the last 25 years has done 2D modeling using other softwares. So we're taking the same 
modeling concept, but having to figure out the buttons to push. So here at Finstamaker, we've done a great job of doing in-house training, formal training. So this helps us kind of get over those hurdles of setup. Basically, the more you use it, the more you, you'll, you'll learn the ins and outs. Yeah. One of the things I find is that as softwares are advancing, mm-hmm. they're not actually making the, the core of it any different, but they're making the buttons easier to press. So they're making modeling easier to set up and easier to take and export the data, which sounds fantastic, but you have to understand what your model's producing. Making sure that the results, whether it's from flood extents or the graphs or what's going on inside, is operating properly because they're making it so easy to punch the buttons right now. You know, some people get results and I see it and I'm like, okay, but does it make sense whenever we look at other events and things like that? So um, I think technology is great. We just have to make sure you know all the ins and outs of it. Yeah, it feels like just I'm constantly just even in life and software updates for the phone and just different (laughs) things. It's like we're constantly on this learning curve with technology, but it's a good place to be. It is. It is. And um, better than left behind. It is. And like the, the next generation, they love it. They love it. You know, and I guess I was that, you know, the previous generation, as we keep going, I, I dug into pieces and I'm seeing them dig into it and, and really um, understand it and show us like how we can be more efficient, how we can utilize it. So a lot, a lot of great things with, with technology. Yeah. And you mentioned the next generation. I know the engineering department does a great job of uh, including internships Mm -hmm. and things like that. And actually just, we're looking at doing um, communications wise, like an old school versus new school (laughs) and kind of like, what have they learned from each other? Um, So it seems like that's something that you're talking about like you know they're coming in they're excited and enthusiastic about these newer technologies and kind of sharing that enthusiasm and you're kind of like passing it back and forth so yeah their their enthusiasm is definitely great and they're they have a constant um want to just make things better you know how can we make the world better how can we make things cleaner how can we do things you know differently so it, I love it because it constantly challenges me. You know, there's still sometimes that, okay, the old way, let's just make it simple. We don't have to complicate it. But, you know, the, their constant push to, to making us better is, is phenomenal, and it keeps me on my toes. So. Yeah, well, that's awesome that you welcome that kind of thinking. That's definitely positive. How do you see engineers getting involved to solve our region's flooding issues? Um, as engineers, uh, we definitely are gonna, gonna have to play a a big part of this. Definitely. Um, whether it's serving on boards, um, getting involved with just the community through, uh, different groups, uh, I think it's important that we speak up. One of the things I find engineers hold back their knowledge and their opinions, um, a lot of times because we're you know, at times concerned of liability issues and things like that. There's been so many times that I find engineers that unless we have every box checked, yeah, um, we're hesitant to make a recommendation. And then what happens is other people speak up who have less knowledge, who have less experience. So I think that's a hurdle for the engineering field right now that I think we're going to have to navigate. 
but I'd love to see engineers speak up and get more involved, both on the policy side of things, as well as um, right now the engagement just in, in drainage in general. There's all these groups that have formed. There's a lot of um, different, you know, symposiums that are being held. Get involved, share your knowledge. I think we can definitely contribute. Yeah, I think I heard a saying, the less informed someone is, the more likely they are to be highly opinionated mm-hmm. and probably vocal too. Yeah, and we we have the knowledge and we have the technology in our engineering community. You know, I feel for so many homeowners um, who go and like buy a house or buy a piece of property and want to build a home. They go to their their real estate agent says you're not in a flood zone. Their mortgage company tells them they're not in a flood zone. Their permit agent tells them you don't have to build up, you know, all the way to their, their actual insurance. They, they hear it from all these people and they think they're safe. They get a false sense of security because no one's told them otherwise. You know, we have the knowledge. We have yeah. the technology we need to do a better job of, of protecting people um, by identifying that risk. So I think that's definitely a place that engineers are going to need to play a part in, closing that gap. Well, it sounds like you're perfect to lead that charge. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the Louisiana Watershed Initiative? Um, I understand that we recently responded to the state's Uh, request for proposals. So are we prepared to take on this type of a project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that it's in our backyard. You know, who better? We have the experienced staff. We've also done a great job of um, teaming with national partners uh, to bring in lessons learned that they've experienced in other areas. Uh, I think this is a great opportunity for the state in general, um, but us as a as a team, we have the ability to promote the things that we know will work here, as well mm-hmm. as we're the end user. When it's said and done, when models are created for the region and for the state, we're still here. We're the ones using those models to answer the questions. We also understand the complexities of our system. We understand what agricultural does to our watershed. We understand the impacts of coastal and the tide, like we were talking earlier, and subsidence. By having this understanding and also having the knowledge and the technology, we can blend those two together to to make this successful. So I think this is a great opportunity for for the state. I think this is a great opportunity for for Finstermaker. And um, I'm really, really excited about this initiative. Uh, How big of a project is this? And how many years are we talking about for completion? So what the Watershed Initiative includes, it's $1.2 billion of funding that has came from the federal government the state of Louisiana in response to the storms of 2016. Um, locally here, we just think of the August 2016 storm, but there was actually another some other events that occurred in, in March, I believe, of 2016. So this $1.2 is coming to the state. The state is looking to spend $100 million of that to study and do models. Um, they want to set up models that can determine regional impact of, of projects, ensuring that what we do in one part of the watershed doesn't negatively impact the other. Um, they are also looking to form 
commissions within each of these regions to help with the project identification, as well as looking and seeing if they can set baseline policies, um, which I think is extremely important. One of my passions is more of the policies and program side and, and making those changes. I think project's just one of those pieces. Um, there's a lot of regulations within the 1.2 billion, so 50% has to be spent within six years, the whole 100% within 12. You can only spend it, a large portion of it has to be spent in the parishes that saw the damages okay. from 2016. Um, but what we're going after right now is the modeling part. That's the, um, the $100 million has been split between seven regions. Um, we're going after some of these regions to, to try and um, utilize our modeling experience and our local knowledge to, to promote the project. And I, I think it's a great, great piece for the state. Um, other states have, you know, kind of charged this way and it seems to be working and I think is a great, great direction for us. So you mentioned your passion is on the policy side of things. Can you think of in recent years or just at any time in your career where you've seen a significant shift in policy that maybe you were like proud of or, I don't know, invigorated by? Yeah, I really think in the last um, 20 years, we've made huge leaps. You know, it used to be that a development could come in and didn't have to do any detention. Okay. Um, they A home could just build a house and, you know, had it had to be at a certain BFE and that was it. Now we're adding a, a one foot freeboard, which is you build one foot higher than what the flood it would be at 100 for the 100 year storm. So as communities are adopting these additional regulations, it, it mm -hmm. protects people. Um, it protects our generations to come. Yeah. Um, I think we still are a little bit behind on land use. Um, I think we can do a better job of promoting buffers along channels. I think we can do a better job of identifying what I mentioned earlier, protecting all people, no matter what flood zone they are categorized by FEMA. You know, if they have a flood risk, ensuring that they know how high that they need to build. Um, I also feel that we need to utilize the latest and greatest data. Um, there's quite a few municipalities and parishes that still utilize um, data from the 1970s for rainfall, where there's now newer data yeah. that's more accurate. So I, I think that there are steps in our policies. I am also a big proponent that I don't think we should just look at policies. I think we should have a good balance of policies and programs. Okay. So there should also be incentives that incentivize people who do more? Do they add more green space? Do they look at low impact development techniques um, and, and complementing the two, the policies with the programs? I think that's the only way successful. It, it's the only way that it can be successful. Yeah. Um, and projects don't aren't the saving grace of everything. If we don't start thinking differently, we're, it's just going to be a revolving door of us being right back where we're at because that project's going to reach its life, design life. So yeah. I think those are important pieces. Well, you definitely have really good insight on that. I'm glad <laughs> that you have a voice in the community for it. Um, so the Louisiana Watershed Initiative is a positive step, like you said, towards fixing our extreme flooding problems that we've been experiencing recently. How will the Watershed Initiative help with this problem? And you kind of already touched mm -hmm. on this, but what else do you think that we can and should do? So the Watershed Initiative, in my opinion, is the first time that we stop and make decisions based on science and data. Oh, I like that. I, yeah, I know, right? It, it makes, makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. Um, you know, in the past, I, we would make decisions 
we would use science and, and pieces, but we wouldn't look at the bigger picture. So it's yeah. the state working together as a whole. And not just as a state, but the state has actually even been pulling in our our neighboring states because yeah. water, you know, it, we hear it over and over, water does not see jurisdictional boundaries. So I think that it's been a, a great push for that to utilize science and data to select the projects and not politics. Um, I think it is going to benefit, benefit us in the long run, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, there's a lot of people involved, and I'm really happy with the people sitting at the table coming forward. I mentioned earlier about engineers getting involved in the process, and I'm seeing them step up and, and kind of working together. So uh, for the state, this is going to be a, a, a great move. Um, we've got It's going to be long. It's not yeah. going to be a quick, it's not gonna be a, a quick uh, journey. So I think we've got to definitely navigate through it, and there'll be some speed bumps along the way, but in the end, I think it'll be really good for the state. You know, I can't wait for, for the headlines to read, you know, Louisiana at the forefront of, you know, floodplain management oh, that'd be nice. um, and watershed management. I, I think that would be nice. You know, I want to be one, number one for once and not number 49th on that list. Yeah, definitely. So um, this gives us the opportunity to do that. So Yeah, that's nice and very encouraging. What do you suggest that someone in the general public who is not an engineer can do to help with these issues? Uh, be present. Be, be present in the process. Um, a lot of days, you know, today a lot of people take to social media mm-hmm. to voice their opinions. And that's great, but it gets drowned a yeah. lot of times by everything else. There are, we talk town hall meetings. There are town hall meetings. There are public meetings. This is difficult, I know, for some people to attend. We all have lives. We all have kids. But the more that you can get involved, the better. Um, Utilize your politicians. They're there and they will listen. Utilize them as a sounding board for your thoughts and where you want to see things go. Um, Unless you speak up, unless you're present, people aren't going to know your feelings. Um, And a lot of times the people who are speaking up, you may not agree with. So, you know, we want to hear both sides. I think it'll make us better. So the more you can get involved, uh, that's actually the best route for success is just being involved. Um, Yeah, that's good advice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds simple enough. Just show up. Um, Can you discuss the challenges and rewards that come from having been predominantly trained as a water resource specialist, now managing a team of engineers with such a broad spectrum of abilities and specialties? And um, I guess, in addition, can you talk about how you balance your roles as both engineer and manager? Sure. Or should uh, I break that down? <laughs> should I break that down into uh, two questions? Can or can we, you we can navigate? Okay, you navigate. Let's it. navigate. All that. right. <laughs> um, so, you know, when I went to school as an engineer, I, I think they teach all engineers to solve problems. So at the end of the day, we all have the same goal. We're here to solve problems. We're here to to help people. Um, and I think that that, that's important as we navigate through anything. Um, I focused in water resources, but I mentioned earlier that there's a lot of dynamics and a lot of pieces that I've gotten to participate in. And and that's made me a stronger engineer. When I go into a project that my past experience of working with that structural engineer or that roadway engineer make me see the bigger picture. 
So I, I think that that's been definitely something that has helped. Um, when working with my team, uh, I like to see where people have strengths. I have people that are more management focused or extremely organized. I have some people who love the details. I talked about the town <laughs> hall. I have some people who love doing them and putting them together. And it's just what they, it, it drives them. Um, other people, they like to, their driver is to complete a set of plans and see something constructed. Yeah. So, you know, one of the focuses that I have is how can we make these people successful? Yeah. Because if they're successful, then we're all successful. If they like what they're doing, um, I, that's definitely been a challenge for me, you know, because there's not always an opportunity to give everybody exactly what they want in life. Um, right, but right. trying to figure out and, and look at each one of them and give them something that they're proud of. I think that's definitely something that uh, has helped me to work with the different groups and, you know, as I train people um, teaching them the same thing. So, yeah, it seemed like just, it makes sense, you know, just where people naturally shine to just kind of find them a position to where they can shine, Yep. you know, and listening to people and finding out what they're passionate about. And then something that might be a chore for one person mm-hmm. might be someone else's complete delight. So it seems like you're doing a good job of recognizing everyone's unique passions and then allowing them to express outwardly from there. And I think too, also looking at our clients, you know, seeing our, our clients and what, what are they asking you for? What do they have to work with? You know, some of our, our clients have very limited, limited budget. Mm -hmm. So giving the most that they can for, for what they can afford. Um, I think that's a, definitely something as working with my team, teaching them to look at your end user, try and figure out, can you give them what they're asking for? Can you give them more? What can you do to help them strategize to to make get the most out of what they can pay for? I think those are all definitely elements that have came together, and I'm trying to relay those to those that work with me, and I, I think they're doing a good job. That's awesome. <laughs> a lot of your projects seem to require you to be what I would refer to as being on. So that can be mentally draining. What do you do to manage your stress so that you can stay consistently focused on your projects and dedicated to your profession? Mm, that's a good one, right? <laughs> um, it's like the ultimate challenge in life. Though, I know, right? I'm managing stress. <laughs> um, you know, oddly, work does not stress me. It's not, it doesn't. I enjoy what I do. Um, I have a really easy on-off switch. My kids stress me out. (laughs) My youngest one can definitely stress me. Um, But for work, it's, I don't think I stress because I always look at one thing at a time, see what I can get done. Um, My other piece is a, a very strong team. Having people that I can trust, that I know will carry their pieces, um, help me. They help to keep me organized. I'm always, I'm usually, I'm running in circles, um, but they make sure that I'm at the right spot and doing the right thing, and they're preparing me for my next meeting. So a strong team helps that stress level. You know, if you trust and you're you're working as a team, you can take a deep breath and sit back and enjoy it. Yeah, if if you're stressed, you're not enjoying it. 
Um, and I always look at things. I'm a very optimistic person. I feel things happen for a reason. And if that door doesn't open, it didn't open for a reason. And I need to just go to the next one. So I think that also helps with those pieces of, of managing stress. Now, home stress, I need to work on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all do and all can. And um, so finally, a closing question that I ask all of my guests in the spirit of the podcast fueled. Um, what fuels you just in general, in life, your career, work, family? What keeps you going? So currently, I would say the thing that fuels me the most are my kids. Um, and it's not just my kids, but it, it's the next generation. I have a, a great want of the what if and how can we make it better and that's one of the things that definitely fuels me I think if you ask my colleagues though um <laughs> they'll tell me you know it, it, it's the drive of work it, it's what's next what can we do next how can we satisfy our clients it's more of the the pride of um doing good and, and doing great work. Yeah. I, I think that that's my other other driver, you know. One part of me says it's my family and my kids and the next generation, but I also love what I do, and I think the work we do is great, so we can keep it going. It just keeps driving me more and more. <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect closing um, for this podcast episode, and thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. I always learn whenever I talk to you, <laughs> so I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Catherine. This was definitely fun.